When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the, must not take yourself too seriously, and 6-1 since that matters, and what do I even say other than, hey? <sighs> well, that's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble. With exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. This is a crowd podcast. We didn't start the fire. The only podcast started by me, Billy Joel. Birth control. Ho Chi Minh. Richard Nixon back again. Of course he is. Oh, God, will he ever go away? Hello and welcome to episode 99 of We Didn't Start the Fire, the podcast that explores post-war history and the reasons why the world is like it is today, all done through the lyrics of a number one smash hit from the legend that is Billy Joel. I'm Tom Fordyce. I'm Katie Puckrick. Katie, are we ready for the next part of our beautiful adventure? I'm so ready. Today's episode is number 99, Richard Nixon, back again. He is back again, Katie. It feels like quite a long time since Millhouse Nixon first appeared on our screens. He was at that stage a man being beaten by JFK in the 1960 presidential elections. He was also a man, do you remember the story about how <laughs> he got together with his eventual wife, Pat? <laughs> yeah. Wait, remind us of that? He... <laughs> <laughs> I'm pretty sure she didn't really fancy him yeah. and he just kept plugging away. Didn't he at some point take her on a date with the person she yes. did fancy? Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. He he offered to chauffeur her <laughs> with the man she was literally hot and juicy for. So she remained dry as a bone for young dick, but uh, <laughs> she managed to summon her lady parts and surge them in his direction. Now, we're talking about the era of the late 60s. Of course, he lost the presidential election to JFK in 1960 and then lost his bid to be the governor of California. And it seemed that the former vice president, Richard Nixon's career, was over. But he fought to regain prominence in 68 when he re-ran for president. So I don't know if that was just a silly idea. He was living in denial. He was a victim of hubris, or he had his eye on the prize and he knew what he was doing. I just don't know. But you weren't even alive in 1968, were you? Not for some time. Not for some time. Okay, yeah. I I was around, so I'm going to tell a little story of being a six-year-old. I was a little six-year-old wee one. I lived in West Berlin, and I remember seeing the front page of the Herald Tribune, and there was a photo of the candidates. And this was when everybody was running for president in that election, 1968. And I announced, in a very precocious fashion, had my eye on politics from a young age, that I wanted Richard Nixon to win because, quote, he was the smiliest, oh. unquote. And I have to say, I know it doesn't sound very sophisticated, but I think grown-ups nowadays pretty much base their votes on the same... <laughs> 
criteria. <laughs> I don't think anything has really changed. I could prattle on like a six-year-old for some time, but thank goodness there's a person here who's going to save us from that. He is David Greenberg. He's a historian and professor of U.S. history, as well as journalism and media studies at Rutgers University. And he is also the author of Nixon's Shadow, The History of an Image. Welcome, David. Thank you. Good to be with you. So your book is about Nixon's public image. What was the word on the street about Richard Nixon by 1968? I mean, he'd he'd flopped in his runs to be the president and the governor of California. What did people think about him? Well, you know, the Billy Joel lyric is exactly right. You know, Nixon's back again. <laughs> he was already sort of seen as someone who you could not keep down and who was always reinventing himself. He had a certain grit and determination that I think really did propel his whole political career. So you go back to the 1950s even, and you start seeing this phrase, the new Nixon. And this is kind of a motif of my book, Nixon's Shadow. I just found this phrase throughout these years. I mean, all politicians change and modify in response to the changing political climate or as they evolve as people. But Nixon was always very deliberate and very transparent in his reinvention. So that's kind of why this idea of the new Nixon catches on. It's like, here he goes again, kind of putting on a new persona. So there were new Nixons in the mid 50s. He runs in 1960. There's talk of a new Nixon. But again, in 1968, it's not just that Nixon's back, it's that the new Nixon is back. There's yet another new Nixon. People have lost count. <laughs> and it is very much seen as a comeback. He'd been counted out. Uh, he lost the race for president. Then he kind of took a step down to run for governor. It was sort of assumed he should win that, and he lost that too. So he wasn't considered someone who was you know, necessarily first in line for the presidency. But starting after the loss for governor, he very doggedly, you know, lines up allies, travels around the country, takes foreign trips to sort of enhance his image as a statesman and someone who can talk foreign policy, weighs in on public issues. Before you know it, he's a serious contender for the 1968 Republican nomination. It's interesting that uh, he's somebody who seeks to constantly tweak and sort of lubricate his appeal and, and perhaps pander in certain ways because he doesn't strike me as somebody who's naturally charming. So I think of someone who has charm and adroitness with people as someone who has a facility to kind of be a chameleon and be the person you want to be. He, Richard Nixon seems altogether more cloddish and clumsy in his approach and very kind of desperate. But I guess, as you say, there's something to be said for persisting. You know, it's the war of attrition. You know, that quality is, is sort of transparency of his efforts to remake himself is really what's distinctive about him and why I think he's such an interesting figure in this period. So, to give one example, it actually comes from his presidency. 
You know, he always envied the Kennedys and he would look at these pictures of JFK or RFK strolling on the beach and looking so kind of handsome and debonair. <laughs> yeah. So as president, Nixon's out in California where he has a house and he summons all of the reporters and photographers to a bluff in San Clemente, California <laughs> for a big photo op. The idea is he's going to be walking along the beach, kind of looking Kennedy-esque. But then he comes out and he's wearing wingtips and trousers. Like he's wearing this, not anything a normal person would wear on the beach. So instead of looking Kennedy-esque, he looks like someone trying to seem Kennedy-esque, right? This is always what you see with Nixon. You see the effort going into the image, not just the final image. And I think that effort... On the one hand, it was something people mocked and it made them think of him as highly political and highly adaptive and opportunistic even. But it also, for many people, they came to admire the effort that he was someone who was just highly determined, highly ambitious. And this is an admirable quality in, in politics and elsewhere. And, and it came through. We're just looking at the contrast between these two pictures here in the studio and we'll put them on our social media feeds. But I think this is best described, Katie, as... <laughs> JFK looks positively like Robert Redford. Yeah. He, his hair is magnificent. The beach is even a better beach. Um, <laughs> yeah. And he is casually looking very stylish, whereas Nixon, you find yourself looking thinking, your shoes are going to get ruined. Why are you wearing that suit at this time of the day? Have you just got in? Are you going out? And also he is so conscious of the cameras, David. This seems to be a Nixon trope as well. Whereas Kennedy is pictured looking out to sea wistfully as if he's been captured secretly. Nixon can't help but give a big Nixon grin and look at all the cameras. <laughs> right. Well, so this is sort of Nixon's great, un I don't know if it's his undoing, but it's it's such a signature quality about him he he just can't help himself there's an inherent awkwardness of personality one of his aides said every time nixon saw him or met his wife she'd make this he would make the same joke about the aides tie he just didn't have the gift of small talk of ease in interpersonal interactions so he he just had trouble relaxing and projecting himself in a kind of honest, lighthearted, straightforward, easygoing moment. And, you know, one reason I think the Watergate tapes, again, to jump ahead, become such a scandal is that the private Nixon, who people hear on those tapes once they're revealed, who's vulgar and hateful, it's also very spontaneous and it's so at odds with the Nixon that he tries to project in public, who is always very kind of stiff and formal and tries to be statesmanlike. So it's this gap between the Nixon they think they know and then the Nixon they hear on these secret tape recordings. Yeah, yeah, because, uh, you know, I'm sort of hung up on like, oh, he was lying and oh, listen to him being a crabby bad man. But actually what perhaps the, the real dissonance was, he was kind of letting it all hang out and who knew that he could do that? So I'm wondering if you can set the scene for Nixon's reemergence on the national stage. Vietnam War was seriously losing whatever charm it once had. The youth movement, uh, hippies, black power were emergent cultural forces. 
conservatives fearing change were amenable to a message of reinforcing white patriarchal norms. Was he feeling like, hey, this is my time, guys? Well, look, it was a time of intense cultural division. You know, the promise of the early 60s of reform and change in this very idealistic spirit had given way to a much uglier reality. You know, a lot of the student movements had turned uh, violent, had turned much more radical and extreme. You had rising crime in the cities. As you say, the Vietnam War had become a quagmire. Americans were losing confidence in not just the ability to win the war, but the wisdom of America being there in the first place. Nixon really sees himself, odd as it may sound, as the one who can bring the country together, who can sort of bring experience, you know, reason, judgment to bear. Yeah, he had been vice president for eight years as a young man. He had been on the scene now for another eight years as an important public figure and leader in his party. And so he was seen, at least by some people, as someone who could maybe take us back a little bit to a time more like the 50s, when things seemed more orderly and more in control. On the other hand, he had a whole reputation from those years uh, that made him anathema to a lot of liberals and made him as someone given to dirty tricks. So he had this very uh, divided image, but it's surprising to see how much of the country still kind of was willing to put stock in that mature, decent, upright Nixon. His strange genius, David, from the outside appears to be that he manages to make himself the answer to lots of different questions that Americans are asking themselves. (laughs) That's a good way to put it. He is versed in public policy. You know, he's someone who is poised to address all of these issues. And he has kind of an overarching, you know, one of the key phrases, which was not original to 1968, goes way back, uh, was law and order, which he sort of uses to tie together the rise in crime, but also the urban riots that had been happening kind of every summer for the last several summers and really causing, you know, a lot of devastation as well as fear and uncertainty. You know, this was a year of assassinations too. Both Martin Luther King and Robert F. Kennedy are assassinated within a matter of weeks of each other. Student protests against the war are turning increasingly rowdy, sometimes violent, certainly out of control, a sense that the college campuses have ceased to be places where real education is going on and are kind of just these breeding grounds for radical activism. And so the law and order phrase, in a way, promises a response to all of that. We're gonna gonna end this period of chaos and, and tumult and go back to something that is more stable. And we can address these policies, whether it be withdrawal from Vietnam or crime, you know, in a more sober, orderly, policy-driven fashion. David, I'm wondering, do you think Nixon was a a shoe-in for the Republican nominee for president? Who were the other contenders and why did they fall by the wayside? Well, there is something of a race 
for the nomination, uh, we have to remember that it's really not until the 1970s that the presidential primaries that we're so used to now determine the winner. States could select their delegates based on any number of different methods, primaries being just one that were sometimes used. So if you had a powerful governor in your corner, he could deliver that state's delegates to you, whether or not there was a primary in that state. Later on, it came to be the case that every state had primaries or caucuses, and it was the people who decided. But back then, it was a much more backroom political process. So the first guy who seems like a contender is the governor of Michigan named George Romney, the father of Mitt Romney, who we know today as a senator from Utah. Uh, George Romney ran into trouble when he went to Vietnam and came back saying that he changed his mind because he had been brainwashed. And this, you know, kind of in the annals of presidential candidates, gaffes ranks fairly high. <laughs> Eugene McCarthy on the Democratic side said, I would have thought a light rinse would do because um, <laughs> George Romney was not known as the brightest bulb. It sort of falls by the wayside. And then you have two candidates, one to Nixon's left and one to Nixon's right. To the left was Nelson Rockefeller, who was a Republican, but really not just a moderate Republican. Really, I think it's fair to call him a liberal Republican, at least on many issues although he was moving somewhat to the right by this point in his career to try to keep up with where the Republican Party was moving. And Nelson Rockefeller still wants this to be the party of Lincoln, still wants it to be the party that's home for blacks as well as whites. On the other side, you have Ronald Reagan, who's the you know, very right-wing governor of California, who has made his reputation as a kind of angry man. It's funny because a lot of pundits from Washington talk about Reagan as amiable and genial, but that wasn't how he came to power. He came to power as the guy who said when radicals had taken over People's Park in Berkeley, California, if it's going to take a bloodbath, let's get it over with. You know, who wanted to get oh tough? Gosh. Yeah. I mean, that was Reagan's. Roll up your sleeves. Right. And, you know, later he it's getting tough with the Russians. And so Reagan is to Nixon's right and, and Rocky is to his left. And so it kind of gives Nixon the positioning to stake out this kind of middle ground partly as a compromise candidate, but also, again, with his experience his kind of stiff quality plays sort of in his favor. You know, he's not going to be uh, too extreme, especially when you see these kind of extreme right wing currents. There's also George Wallace, who's a Democrat. He's he's out there in the mix, not for the Republican nomination, but running you know far to the right. So there's really a sense that Nixon is kind of a, a centrist almost, which seems odd to us today. But that's kind of in the constellation of candidates where he winds up. So in the end, you know, he, maybe he's not a shoe in but neither Rockefeller nor Reagan poses much of a threat. Nixon wins those primaries that matter. He tends to win by large margins. And he goes to the Republican convention in Miami 
certainly with the expectation that he's going to be the nominee, even if it's not a complete lock. And how have the Democrats got themselves in a position where they are likely to lose that 1968 election? Because Lyndon Johnson has won an absolute landslide in 1964 in the aftermath of the assassination of JFK. So how have they lost that vast lead? The main thing that derails him in his bid for a second term is Vietnam. And his determination to keep escalating troop presence, even though it doesn't seem to be effective in deterring, you know, the North Vietnamese from trying to take over the South or in propping up the South Vietnamese government. At the same time, there's also a backlash to some of these domestic moves, particularly, as I said, because we've entered this much more chaotic and violent period with violence in the streets and rising crime and a sense that here's the government spending all this money uh, for all these social programs, and yet society seems to be coming apart at the seams. So the first one to challenge Johnson is Eugene McCarthy, an anti-war senator from Minnesota. Uh, McCarthy is not really a credible presidential figure. You know, he's kind of shambling. He often abandons the campaign trail to talk poetry with Robert Lowell, who is a friend. And <laughs> McCarthy fancies himself something of a poet. And although he doesn't defeat Lyndon Johnson in the New Hampshire primary, he does shockingly well enough to convince Johnson that he should not seek re-election in 1968. So we're already in, in March of the re-election year when LBJ announces that he's not going to seek another term. And this is sends shockwaves uh, through the electoral system. Uh, McCarthy's success also then encourages Robert Kennedy to get in the race. Robert Kennedy had also become anti-war, had been toying with running, was uncertain. And then the third person in the race is Johnson's vice president, Hubert Humphrey, which is really, again, a tragic story. Humphrey had been really a, a diehard liberal, one of the leaders going way back on civil rights in the party and pushing the Democratic Party to be more active in addressing you know, racial discrimination. He had also been anti-war or at least against Johnson's policy. But as a good soldier, as the vice president, he kept those disputes internal. So people wondered, you know, why, why isn't Humphrey speaking out? Because they thought he can't support this war. But being loyal to Johnson and you know, being a, a team player, he didn't really go public with his opposition to the war until very, very late. It's, it's a messy set of primaries. It's very uncertain. And it results in this chaotic Democratic convention of 1968 in Chicago, which ends up nominating Hubert Humphrey, but leaving everybody in the party, no matter which side you are on, demoralized and disappointed. And just real quickly, that convention, wasn't there violence there? Yeah. I mean, it was a crazy convention. Anti-war protesters from all over targeted Chicago, had come in for street protests, most of them nonviolent, you know, some some bad apples in the bunch, but Mayor Daley of Chicago had really told the police, you know, to spare no effort 
to bring these folks to heel. So a lot of the violence was kind of police instigated and as it's often described as a police riot. So there's violence going on outside the convention hall, even inside the convention hall, there's violence, fist fights. Daly is calling Abe Ribicoff, a Jewish uh, center from Connecticut by, you know, anti-Semitic slurs. You know, newsmen are being carried off by security guards. It's just a mess, but it's, it's sort of a sad outcome. And of course, the, the recent assassination of Robert Kennedy in June, you know, left people without a clear alternative. I mean, some people still wanted McCarthy, George McGovern, who would be the Democrats nominee four years later, kind of makes a half-hearted effort. But there's really no great alternative to Humphrey. So, you know, the irony is years earlier, had he been the Democratic nominee, he probably would have been beloved and embraced and very popular by these Democrats. Now he's associated with Vietnam. He's too linked to LBJ. Yeah, it sounds like there was way too much chaos. And then all of these potential candidates are coming in too late yeah. in the game to establish themselves. And there's been Richard Nixon doggedly plowing the field for many, many years. I'm wondering, David, if you can get into what the Southern strategy was, because this was the beginning of the modern Republican Party as a haven for bigots and businessmen kind of switching, switching it away from uh, what it had been previously. Right. Well, you know, it's not just the bigots. I mean, obviously, there's there's a segment of the society, particularly in the South, that is unreconciled to racial equality. They had been Democrats, and as the Democratic Party increasingly becomes the party of racial equality and fighting for you know, equality for black Americans, the Republicans see an opportunity to get those folks. But again, it's, it's not it's not all the just white supremacists and bigots. It's also people who in other ways see the Democratic Party as coddling these protesters too indulgent on crime, you know, have lost their way with sort of traditional values of patriotism and work and family. So it's a it's a whole set of appeals. The South, you know, as I said, had traditionally been solid democratic terrain. I mean, going back to the Civil War, uh, even before the Civil War, it starts to change in the middle of the 20th century. So Nixon's really not the first to see political opportunity there. In fact, Barry Goldwater in 1964 has something he calls Operation Dixie, which is kind of a forerunner of the Southern strategy. But the idea here is, yeah, these people are no longer ripe for Democratic candidates to pluck. Their ideology is increasingly at odds with where the Democrats are going. So it's time for the Republicans to sort of move in and try to flip those states. And of course, over the long run, this is precisely what happens. We now have a relatively solid South, only it's not a solid Democratic South, it's a solid Republican South. I mean, we're starting to see some changes, first Virginia, then uh, maybe Georgia. So it's, it's not monolithic. But if you look at the Electoral College map, you know, from early in the 20th century compared to where we are now, you'll be sort of struck by just the upside down reversal of where the two parties are harvesting their votes. Casey, we have various counterfactuals in the course of making this podcast. And I think one of the great ones is there 
in this episode. And that, David, is what happens if Robert Kennedy isn't assassinated in California in June of that year. Had he lived, would he have been a genuine threat to Nixon's presidency? Would he have gathered all that momentum that the Democrats had lost? You know, historians famously hate counterfactuals because, (laughs) you know, there's just no way to know. There's no way to sort of run the experiment. And there's so many possible eventualities that could follow and that could fork or ramify in different ways. That said, you know, in the end, Hubert Humphrey, for all of his liabilities, came very, very close. Nixon won, you know, only by a whisker in 1968. And it's certainly conceivable that Robert Kennedy would have been just that much stronger a candidate and and could have pulled it off. You know, one has to think it would still have been a close election because some of the popular antagonism was not just to Lyndon Johnson or just to Humphrey, but to the Democrats. That's where the Democrats were starting to have the kind of branding problem that they still have today. Party is soft, weak, you know, not tough. That whole cluster of associations was already beginning to afflict the party. You know, it, it's, it's an open question, but certainly he became, and this is partly because of the assassination. You know, we see this with JFK too. When someone is cut short in the prime of his life before he has completely fulfilled his promise, There's a natural human tendency to sort of imagine that had he lived, all these great things would have come true. And usually the reality is more messy than that, which is not to say that Bobby Kennedy couldn't have been a great president and, you know, had a great career. It's just to say a lot of the idealism follows from the fact that he was cut short so brutally in his prime. How is it that Humphrey gets as close to Nixon as he does because with about a month, month and a half to go, Nixon's got a double digit lead and it looks like he's home and hose. But something seems to change, particularly in those last few weeks of campaigning. Well, the, the main thing really, I think, is Vietnam, that Humphrey comes out more forcefully and decisively against the war and makes clear he is eager to wind the war down. And that does sort of bring home, as they say, a lot of anti-war people, liberals, uh, others who had become disenchanted with him. It's also still, you know, even though we see 68 as kind of the beginning of an era of the conservative ascendancy, it's also still a liberal country in a lot of ways. They're just a lot of people who still don't want to give up, whether it's racial equality, whether it's the vision of government providing a strong social safety net and helping to improve the lives of people through education and so forth. That's still a vision that has a lot of purchase. And so, you know, it's significant that even as Republicans dominate the presidential elections from 68 through 88 until Bill Clinton comes along, they don't dominate in the House of Representatives. You know, the Senate kind of goes back and forth a bit, but there does remain a strong liberal impulse. And, you know, there's a lot of history about the rise of conservatism in America. And a lot of it overlooks that 
liberalism remains a powerful and popular force. How did Richard Nixon choose his running mate, Spiro Agnew? The story of Spiro Agnew is is really kind of an amazing one that you know, he was not at all a prominent figure on the political scene. A lot of people were quite surprised when Nixon chose him. He was the governor of Maryland. He actually was considered sort of a moderate. He had backed Nelson Rockefeller for the nomination in 68. But he also was part of this backlash. So again, sort of, we shouldn't think of the backlash on race and crime and welfare purely as a matter of like the Southern white supremacist types. There's also a lot of urban constituencies who you know, are finding themselves amid a, a kind of sea of problems. And certain governors, certain mayors kind of come to power or shore up their power by taking a tough line on this stuff. And that's kind of where Agnew fits in. So he's he's a bit of an obscure figure, um, but Nixon you know, had a dinner with him, came to like him, thought he seemed you know, solid and intelligent. As president, Nixon would completely sideline Agnew. I mean, this was common back then that the vice president was, as Nelson Rockefeller said, standby equipment. Like, it's just not, <laughs> not really part of the policymaking team. He did use Agnew to launch a lot of attacks on the media, on liberals, on the intelligentsia. He was kind of good rhetorically. But, you know, in 68... Agnew was more just a cipher and a puzzlement. And a lot of the political writers covering the campaign were mystified as to what Nixon thought this guy could bring to the ticket. So Nixon wins that election, David. And we'll get on to some of his big policy wins and his big policy aims. But because we started talking about Nixon as a man, here's one thing I wonder. When he finally gets his hands on this prize that he's wanted all his life, does it make him happy? Well, I think Nixon was uh, congenitally averse to being happy. <laughs> you know, he just, happy and Nixon just don't ever seem to go together. I think he had a certain satisfaction, I'm sure. You know, what he likes about winning is to stick it to his enemies and the doubters <laughs> and the critics. You know, that's what really drives him. So, you know, I showed them. That's that's what makes him happy or brings him uh, satisfaction. But it's a very embattled presidency. And, you know, you'll you'll talk more about Watergate in another episode. But even before Watergate, the same kinds of conflicts that are dividing the nation in the late 60s are spilling over. There's still a lot of violence. There's still a lot of protest. The war is still going on. Nixon, he talks about what he calls peace with honor in the 68 campaign. And, you know, that's a nice phrase. People like both of those things. But it makes it very hard because most people understood that some kind of an American withdrawal would be in some ways, if not dishonorable, a concession <laughs> that the war had been a mistake, that it, it wasn't winnable, that you would have to give something if not the whole of South Vietnam in time, over to the North Vietnamese. So Nixon finds it hard to get a peace settlement on the terms that he feels he could claim are honorable. 
And so as a result, he continues the war for the entirety of his first term. And of course, this makes critics of the war you know, quite unhappy. A lot of people had voted for Nixon in 68, thinking he would be a better candidate to end the war than Humphrey. And then in other ways, you know, he fans the flames of cultural division over abortion, over drugs, over the Supreme Court rulings, issues like school busing, you know, of bringing African-Americans to white schools and vice versa to sort of integrate uh, school districts. All of these issues remain very divisive. And so Nixon, for, mo for the most part, instead of being this healer or peacemaker that he wanted to be, is a, someone seen as stoking divisions. Now, eventually in 1972, his foreign policy, the openings to China and detente with the Soviet Union, I think are in large part responsible for you know, his strong victory in the 72 re-election, along with the Democrats nominating George McGovern, who is an incredibly unpopular candidate who says things like, I'll go on my hands and knees to grovel for peace in Vietnam, you know, which is not something people necessarily want to hear. It's not reaching the promised land for him when he's elected. It's it's he's continuing to face all kinds of conflict and division and struggle. But to come back to your question, as a man, he's just constitutionally built for struggle. He's just he's always at <laughs> war with the world, you know, and at war with himself. Yeah, exactly. So he's not someone who can he can just sort of appreciate uh, a big election victory. He's not tiptoeing through the tulips. He's not stopping and smelling the roses. He is marching down the beach in his wingtips, <laughs> fully buttoned up to his neck. Exactly. I'm wondering if you can elucidate on Richard Nixon's relationship with his Secretary of State, Henry Kissinger. Were they equals or did each think they pulled the strings of the other? <laughs> Well, Kissinger was another figure who kind of comes to Nixon late. He was a Rockefeller guy and not really seen as a figure of, you know, the right wing or, you know, a central player in the Republican Party. He's, you know, a, a professor of international relations. Nixon is drawn to him for his intelligence and his policy thinking. At least the, the first wave of journalists and historians who wrote about Kissinger tended to give him a lot more credit for Nixon's foreign policy than he deserved. It's partly because as bad as Nixon was at working the media, Kissinger was good and deft. And Kissinger insinuated himself with the Washington press corps, with sort of the Georgetown set he was good at dinner parties. But as we've learned more as historians and studied the record, it's clear that, you know, Nixon was the strategist. He's the one who had this understanding of what opening China would do. And Kissinger was more the tactician. So he's, he's very much a significant player in all of this. But it really has to be seen as Nixon's foreign policy. Your book, David, is about the Nixon image. And if I were to think of one single image in my head, it's probably a composite of lots of times this photograph was taken, but it's him with his arms outstretched, making the peace sign. He's got the full Nixon jowls. He is smiling, but in that slightly shifty way. His <laughs> suit jacket is still buttoned up. And because of the position of his arms, it looks even more awkward than it should anyway. But then I've also got that 
image of in my head of Nixon as a paranoid man in the White House when there is no smile and he sees enemies even where there are no enemies. Well, I mean, the first thing I'll say, since we're just talking about foreign policy, too, is that there was a degree of sincerity in his desire to be the peacemaker. His mother was a Quaker. And I think the thing that he wanted to achieve with the presidency or he wanted to be remembered for was bringing about peace or making a more peaceful world. And that's what's on his tombstone. You know, that said, as you say, it's it's a kind of crooked, shifty smile. And so he's he's putting out the peace symbol. Yeah, sort of because he believes it. But it's it's hard to credit that as authentic, given his just inherent awkwardness, partly because deep down he's always brooding. He's always carrying these grudges. He has a real vindictive streak. You know, again, not to jump ahead too much into Watergate, but his undoing is that paranoid streak. And he himself admits that. It's also a time of division and polarization, you know, much like our own. So he does have enemies. I mean, there are people wanting to see him out of the presidency. Even before Watergate, there are certain Democrats who are drawing up impeachment charges for other things. But there was a real hatred of Nixon going back to the 1950s that never went away. And he was all too aware of that. Tom and I discussed on our last Nixon episode, of course, we were jumping ahead at that time, the infamous time that Elvis Presley <laughs> and Nixon met. He wasn't an aficionado of the uh, swivel-hipped Presley, but he thought maybe he could co-opt him for his own purposes. What do you think? Well, I mean, I think what's really interesting about that famous meeting, Elvis kind of just shows up at the White House unannounced <laughs> and, you know, wants to meet the president. Kind of a Kanye West style. Right. Elvis comes to the White House wanting to become a volunteer DEA agent, drug enforcement agent, um, because he agrees, you know, drugs are ruining our youth. Yeah, they see this as an opportunity. It's a photo op. It's it's good publicity. Nixon was sort of famously square. But this was a chance for him at least to gesture toward being slightly more hip. You have to remember, this is also when we've passed an amendment to allow 18-year-olds to vote. And so both parties really are cultivating young people for that reason. Well, David, I would posit that uh, John Lennon would be a cutting edge uh, rock star for the youth. And in fact, Nixon famously had the FBI spy on him, which when he mentioned it on the Dick Cavett show, Dick Cavett clearly was trying to awkwardly change the subject because it just seemed too preposterous. But last year on a, a British podcast called Rock and Tours, hosted by Guy Pratt and Gary Kemp, the UK DJ Bob Harris told them that Nixon had asked Elvis to spy on John Lennon. Ah. I don't know if you'd ever heard that before. No, I hadn't heard that. I mean, he did try to have John Lennon deported, but interesting. Uh, yeah, I mean, I, he I heard that Elvis was not a fan of the Beatles. He kind of felt they yeah. had stolen his thunder. Well, it, it sounds like just the perfect conspiracy, don't you think, yeah. Tom? You know, just like, hey, your enemy is my enemy, and let's do a super group here of uh, like getting him out of the picture. Well, and Nixon also was just such a believer in spying. I mean, he loves spying, doesn't he? He loves he can't surveillance. Get enough of it. Subterfuge everywhere. Yeah, secret 
tape recorders, bugs, taps on the <laughs> phones, tapping journalists, wiretapping his own staff. And was that from the beginning? Yeah, no, a- absolutely. I mean, the actual White House taping system doesn't come in till I think it's 1971. But in March of 1969, he and Kissinger engage in this massive wiretapping plan against Kissinger's own staff, as well as journalists. So this is the beginning. And it's kind of amazing that Kissinger isn't more tightly connected to Watergate. I mean, he he wasn't necessarily involved in the 1972 break-in, but he was engaged in quite a lot of illegal wiretapping and that sort of thing. Does Nixon remake America in his own image, David? Because If I think about the cliches of the 60s and 70s, it's the sunny, optimistic 60s and it's the paranoid, conservative 70s. So is Nixon responsible for that or is the country responsible for Nixon? He was elected by a country that was increasingly fearful, a country that was concerned about enemies of one sort or another. And so I think people saw in him, at least some people saw in him, this quality, maybe not in the kind of extreme form that would later become clear with the the tapes and so on. But of course, you know, the president does have the power to shape public opinion, too. You know, we've we've seen that with the way that Donald Trump has reshaped the Republican Party. And we've seen it in other instances as well. So Nixon does help turn the Republican Party, at least, and maybe the country, into the vehicle that then um, also elects Ronald Reagan. I mean, people sometimes see Reagan as somewhat more to the right than Nixon, but that the cultural populism, sort of the politics of resentment, which is really the key to Republican success from 68 through the 80s and you know even perhaps continuing onward really is Nixon. Nixon is historically I think the much more important figure than Ronald Reagan in terms of changing the country. That's really interesting. I hadn't really considered that. He was clever enough or he had the instincts to harness this power of grudges, of resentment. And fear. And fear, because that's such a motivating, driving force, like peace and goodwill to all men is all (laughs) very delightful and it's very pie in the sky, but that's not going to get you out of bed in the morning and marching down and to the town hall and setting it on fire. I'm surprised I hadn't thought of this before, but it's what propelled him. You know, he yeah. was motivated by grudges and resentments. And so it's entirely natural that he should turn to that in his politics as a motivator for the people who supported him and voted for him. Yeah. So we're not at Watergate yet, so we're going to just sort of mentally, emotionally edit that out of the picture. But if that never happened, what are we thinking about Nixon as a president? How is he doing so far? He he seems in a way out of step with pop culture, but maybe he's there as a, a drag on things moving too fast. Like, how, how do you assess him as a president at this stage? He really is struggling for a long time. And so in some ways, the fact that he can turn things around by 1972 and win this huge re-election is quite a triumph. In a way, it's yet another comeback. Again, (laughs) we're not supposed to talk about Watergate, but one reason people ask, well, why did he want to break in 
to the Democratic headquarters when he was headed for this landslide victory. But he, of course, he didn't know it was going to be a landslide victory. And for a long time, he looked and seemed very vulnerable as a president. And somebody, whether it's Ted Kennedy, probably not McGovern, could knock him off, could be a much more popular figure. He was legitimately concerned about whether he'd be a one-term president. So the first term is not really a great success. He, in some ways, kind of gives the Democrats what they want. You know, sometimes you hear people credit him, for example, with creating the Environmental Protection Agency. But that's sort of ridiculous. I mean, that was entirely a, a Democratic push. And Nixon kind of exceeds in it. But that was not near and dear to Richard Nixon's heart. That's not what he wanted to do with his presidency. And the ones where he really fights are these cultural issues, which, yes, get the liberals very upset, but also find resonance, again, not just in the South, but with lots of different constituencies that are resentful of policies like busing, other cultural changes, the sexual revolution, the anti-war protesters, and, and, and on down the line. That's where Nixon really finds his domestic voice. So if it was Katie, like we should press pause in the story of Nixon there because we know what's coming next. And our cliffhanger in this case sees us at the Democratic National Headquarters in the Watergate complex in Washington. There are five men in the dead of night with lockpicks, with jimmies and with listening devices. I'm on tenterhooks and my buttocks are tightly pressed together. <laughs> so for now, David Greenberg, thank you so much. And before you go, we should thank you, especially because you are in the process of another masterwork. Tell us about your new book. Oh, well, thank you. Well, we'll let uh, future readers judge whether it's a masterwork. But now I'm writing a biography of John Lewis, uh, the great civil rights leader and uh, U.S. congressman, uh, who also was a player in these times. He worked for Bobby Kennedy's 1960s campaign that was really his entry into the political arena and a magnificent figure who's never had a proper biography so i'm i'm proud to be writing one david thank you so much that was really good fun why were medieval priests so worried that women were going to seduce men with fish that they'd kept in their pants who was the first gay activist and what on earth does the expression sneezing in the cabbage mean? Well, I'll tell you, it's not a cookery technique, that's for sure. Join me, Kate Lister, on Betwixt the Sheets, the history of sex scandal in society, a podcast where we will be bed-hopping throughout time and civilization to bring you the quirkiest and kinkiest stories from history. What more could you possibly want? Listen to Betwixt the Sheets today, wherever it is that you get your podcasts. A podcast by History Hit. Katie, perhaps it's not a surprise because he does appear three times in We Didn't Start the Fire. But when you look at Richard Nixon, it's very hard not to see him as maybe the dominant force linking together so many of our episodes. So, he's a little bit like uh, the fascia in between muscle. <laughs> he is like the fascia, Or yeah. is he just the gunk in between our teeth or toe jam in between <laughs> our nether digits? He's the toe jam football. 
as John Lennon would have it. Here's the case, Katie. So he obviously was beaten by JFK in 1960. Yeah. He was vice president under Eisenhower. Oh, yeah. He was clearly deeply involved in the McCarthy hearings. Yes. Once he became president, he met Zhu on Lai. Yeah. He went up against Nelson Rockefeller, which was the Rockefeller that we should have done when we did the other Rockefeller. Let's Sorry, not Billy. talk about that. Yeah. And he was from the part of Orange County in Los Angeles where Disneyland. Okay, that's a pretty good stab at it, Tom. What about the fact that he would have had toings and froings with Ho Chi Minh? Yeah, he, as we know, invited Elvis to the White House. Yes, there you go. Khrushchev, he had a little bit yeah, of for a sure. interaction. Uh, the, the, the kitchen debates, He so would have called. watched at least one of Lawrence of Arabia Dr. Zhivago. He would have been the president during the moon launch? Yeah, he was. Yeah. So there, there's a lot of connective tissue going on there. A lot of toe jam, a lot of Nixon toe jam going on there. If you would like another podcast to listen to before Katie and I return to your ears, I would recommend going back and listening to our episodes about another US president, John F. Kennedy. We've got two episodes regarding this fine fellow, Kennedy and JFK blown away. Billy sure was fascinated by his story, and I know that you will be too. So make sure that you check those out if you haven't already. And if you would like to get in touch with us with a story or perhaps a guest idea, you can contact us on email at fire at crowdnetwork.co.uk or on social media. We are at Spread That Fire on both Instagram and Twitter. And please make sure you check out our merch collection at spreadthatfire.com. Next week, Katie, a little bit more Nixon in a roundabout way because it is moonshot. To the moon, Tom, to the moon. Crowd Network. A place where you belong. I'm Ken Harbaugh, host of Warriors in Their Own Words, a podcast that presents the unvarnished, unsanitized truth of what we have asked of those who defend this nation. As a country, we need these stories more than ever. Stories from Americans who have borne the battle, including 30-year-old remastered interviews with veterans from World War I recounting their time in the trenches of Europe, and with veterans from World War II, Korea, Vietnam, and from our most recent conflicts in Iraq, Afghanistan, and other battlefields Americans may never have heard of. Hear their stories by listening to Warriors in Their Own Words wherever you find podcasts. Hey, podcast listeners, I'm Paul Brandis introducing my podcast, Countdown to Dallas. It's a fascinating, in-depth look at the seemingly unconnected events that led to the assassination of President John F. Kennedy. It's based on my book of the same title. In that book and in this podcast, I go all the way back to 1939, when Lee Harvey Oswald was born into a troubled and dysfunctional family. I'll follow his transient and often violent teenage years and young adulthood, painting a fuller picture of the man who would later become Kennedy's killer. I also take a look at events unfolding in that era, like Cuba and Vietnam, and I'll unpack the conspiracy theories too, not one of which has ever been conclusively proven. Subscribe to Countdown to Dallas at evergreenpodcasts.com 
or your favorite listening app, October 31st. I'm Ken Harbaugh, host of Burn the Boats from Evergreen Podcasts. I interview political leaders and influencers, folks like award-winning journalist Soledad O'Brien and conservative columnist Bill Kristol about the choices they confront when failure is not an option. I won't agree with everyone I talk to, but I respect anyone who believes in something enough to risk everything for it. Because history belongs to those willing to burn the boats. Episodes are out every other week wherever you get your podcasts.